Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, time to discuss the Cisco Cast case. Where our first podcast on this issue, I was actually looking back, was almost two and a half years ago, <laughs> if I remember correctly, where Suhag had uh, joined the podcast at that time. Samir was there. Samir couldn't make it today, but uh, we had discussed the case then, and uh, some some specific developments have happened as far as this case is concerned so i'm quoting the haf website on april 10 2023 the california civil rights department voluntarily dismissed its case in superior court in the superior court against cisco systems engineer sundar ayer and ramana kompella who faced allegations of caste based discrimination so to talk about it suhag is here suhag thanks for coming thanks for having me All right, so Ak, so can we just for the benefit of people who may not have seen that uh, discussion two and a half years ago, uh, can you inform them what exactly was the case about, how things have gone, and now what has happened? Yeah, sure. I'll try to do this briefly. Um, so the California Civil Rights Department sued Cisco uh, over allegations of discrimination. They were representing an individual named John Doe, who was a self. described or self identifying uh dalit um they also named uh sundar ayer and ramana kompella as defendants um in the case um for harassment on the basis of caste um and there was a huge media blitz first it's quite unusual um for individuals to be named in cases um usually it's the company that um you know these state bodies will go after um in order to get a remedy for anyone who has um alleged any sort of discrimination um so not only were these defendants named alongside Cisco but there was a unprecedented media blitz on the day that the case was filed um AP News had already covered a press release so that means that there was a press release that had, or at least a a story about it so that means that the civil rights department back then it was called the department of fair employment and housing had obviously um had alongside its legal strategy which i question um a pr strategy in order to maybe have a trial by fire uh through the media knowing that um so much around caste falls into uh, more stereotyped uh narratives as opposed to fact based narratives so uh the case was um actually initially filed in federal court the state withdrew it and then refiled in california court something to know about our court system california is known to have more liberal judges i don't know if that played into it uh but instead of just filing under the federal non-discrimination policies uh or laws in federal court it shifted to state court um since that time there have been a number of kind of tech, not technicalities but points of contention between Cisco and the state one was an arbitration clause when john doe signed on in fact when any employee signs on to a contract apparently at cisco um any sorts of disputes whether it's you know maybe uh wage related or in this case discrimination related it seems that the contract required arbitration um and so going to court as opposed to going to arbitration uh Cisco was saying John Doe didn't exercise that or something along that lines um there was also uh, a question as to whether the state should allow John Doe or or rather the court should allow John Doe to proceed under this pseudonym and um not place his name in public now um if you look at those filings it's very interesting all the statistics or or rather all of the evidence as to why he would face violence in the United States are based in reports on India um that the judge actually ruled that there was he was they that the state failed to make a credible claim that John Doe would be endangered and therefore the state's actually appealed that so that's another piece of this puzzle that's still pending however what's important is that actually the judge rejected the equality labs report as evidence in that case he refused what's called judicial notice judicial notice is given to those pieces of evidence that are so airtight that they don't require any additional proof of uh kind of proving their validity so that's an important point especially because the findings from equality labs we find that you know they're 
quote unquote findings across all of these resolutions that have pushed forecast policies on college campuses in the city of Seattle, et cetera. So um, fast forward in, in that time, uh, we felt that the state had been very heavy handed. We'll talk about the facts later, but in terms of how did the state actually file its case, um, it filed a case on caste-based discrimination, trying to equate caste with race, with color, with ancestry, national origin, and religion. So rather than picking one category where it made sense, it threw the kitchen sink at it. And in doing so, it took a very heavy-handed approach. Um, it also took, to me, a legally questionable approach, uh, especially when going in, you might know that your fact situation is not that strong. You better at least have the strongest legal strategy. But instead, they did what any first-year law student knows the state can't do. The state cannot delve into religious doctrine. But in order to make their case about religion-based discrimination, they tried to define Hinduism as having inherent to it a discriminatory caste system, a hierarchical caste system. And then in order to make that allegation, they have to have defendants who are Hindu, right? So Sundar Iyer, they claim is Hindu, although he's agnostic and even told them as much. He even has blogs from 20 years ago saying that he's he does not practice Hinduism. He considers himself a irreligious atheist slash agnostic. Um, and Ramana Kampala, you know, I don't even know if the questions were asked, but there were presumptions made because they were Hindu. And so that's why we filed what's called a motion to intervene to say, whoa, it's fine state, you know, state body, pursue your claim, but you cannot deny Hindu Americans the right to religious freedom in our ability to define our own religion and that too when you're going to do it wrong. So that was the motion to intervene. Um, after a number of delays, we also sued the state um, in federal court um, rather than trying to intervene as a third party in the state uh, in the state court um, clay, cause, we filed a separate claim to sue the state um, for violations of American civil rights for the Hindu community in California. Same sorts of arguments about a denial of religious freedom, also a denial of equal protection under the law and due process. The state cannot treat different groups differently. And here, the Civil Rights Department was treating the Hindu community very differently by intervening in their um, in their religious rights, you know, making broad sweeping xenophobic claims about Indians, etc. Um, what we saw is that in December was kind of the first inkling that something was awry. Uh, there was a case management file in which there was indication that the state was willing to drop its case or dismiss its case against the two named defendants in exchange for them not filing what's called a motion for sanctions. Now, what a motion for sanctions is, is that as a defendant, if you believe that there's been some sort of prosecutorial abuse or fabrication of uh, evidence or um, suppressing of evidence, which all three allegations were going to be made by the defendants, then you can file kind of a counterclaim. And that's what the defendants did in January. Um, and then we saw last week in the court portal that that motion for sanctions was withdrawn. And then, of course, yesterday we saw that as the December case management file indicated, the state, in exchange for that withdrawal of the motion for sanctions, um, withdrew or dismissed its case. Now, just quickly on the motion for sanctions, um, not only does that motion for sanctions highlight some of the factual um, evidence or the, the, the factual scenario of this case that really call into question what the state was doing in terms of pursuing this on really shaky grounds. But the defendants also raised the same constitutional um, arguments that we raised on behalf of the community they raised as individuals. So, you know, I we don't know what's going to happen to our motion to intervene. We don't know what's going to happen to our uh, federal claim. It's called a Section 1983 claim because now Cisco will go to mediation. We don't know if the if the state will dismiss its case. We don't know whether the case will just be withdrawn. And then that will leave, in some sense, the legal questions that we raised um, up in the air. However, I think that 
the fact that they found their way to help these defendants get justice, um, I'm I'm very satisfied about that. Now, what does this? I mean, I I I just want to make sure that the. So, what does this mean that a case gets voluntarily dismissed at a technical level because you are from a law law background? Yeah. So, what does that mean that uh, prima facie the courts basically or the organization that was looking at this case just did not find any evidence on the on the face of it that could be used to charge the accused allegedly accused people does that mean that is the case no i i don't think that you can draw any concrete conclusions um but we can draw conclusions through inference right or connecting the dots looking at the evidence looking at the filings and what information we have available now the voluntary uh, dismissal here what it means is that after three years of, uh, you know, insisting and appealing on every little matter, uh, left, right, and center, all of a sudden the state said, okay, we're going to withdraw our case against the defendant. So there, in, in terms of inference, one might think, let's look at the facts, you know, or the facts not there. The other thing I will point out about this is that it was voluntarily dismissed with prejudice. And this with prejudice, I think, is causing a lot of confusion in um, the Twitter world. What with prejudice means is that you, they, the state cannot, is barred from filing another case against these two defendants arising out of the same scenario. So they're protected. The state can't turn around you know, in four weeks and say, oh, we found something new. We're going to go after you. Um, so that's what with prejudice means. So um, in terms of what might have happened, um, here is what, um, you know, we, our legal team here internally at HAF and talking to other lawyers, um, including some that know the CRD case very closely, there's a couple of things that I think line up and um, could very well have contributed to where we are today in terms of a dismissal um, of the case against the two defendants. One is that uh, the two attorneys um, that were leading the charge on this case, Janet Whipper, and I believe Mel Melanie Proctor, um, Janet Whipper was fired over another case. And there too, there's some controversy. It's uh, two cases. It was the Activision case. Um, I'm not too familiar with the the what all happened there. But you see a similar pattern of going to the media and having a media blitz before even the uh, factual basis or the legal strategy is outlined. So she was fired. Now, she claims that the governor was trying to intervene in the case, but the governor's office said we did no such thing. Who knows? But the fact is that the person that might have been ideologically committed to pursuing this case in spite of not having a strong factual basis was fired. So you have a transition and new attorneys coming onto the case. Um, then uh, our federal lawsuit comes into the game. So what the federal claim does is that now all of a sudden the Civil Rights Department is not um, just doing its thing behind closed doors. Now, all of a sudden, you have a third state body um, that has to defend the CRD as it's been sued in federal court. So my guess is that a third body, a government body comes in and says, hey, what's the deal? This organization has raised some constitutional questions about the way that you raise the case. And so now all of a sudden you have additional scrutiny coming in. And then the third thing is that the, the, the motion for sanctions was filed, right? Where the defendants are alleging prosecutorial abuse, fabricating of evidence, as well as suppression of evidence. So let's talk a little bit about those facts as well in terms of what was the factual premise of these case, of this particular case. But I think all of those things together, um, I think draw a pretty compelling picture as to why we are here today. So just one question. Was Indian law used in any way to suggest that this, uh, you know, anti-caste system or whatever from the constitutional perspective or a legislative perspective, whatever way you want to look at it, is uh, kind of intrinsic to the faith of Hinduism? I'm talk, not a, talking about the scripture. I'm talking about Indian legal systems because a lot of times, Suhag, what happens is people in India, I'm just giving you the Indian 
perspective i mean it's not pan india i'm just saying some people in india keep whining about how wokeism w o k e that's what i'm of america is coming to india and i have always said the opposite i'm like what americans need to watch out is indian systems coming in america so does the has the first uh, has this uh, the prosecution in courts that were going after these two gentlemen uh were, were they using indian law as a benchmark to say american law needs to change and come up like indian law no to the best of my recollection i've read a lot a lot of the case filing so i don't have them all memorized but to the best of my recollection no but i agree with you um very often as we see uh some of the trends here in terms of uh trying to legislate uh classes that are presumed to be oppressed uh classes that are then by default presumed to be oppressors if they're not named um we need only look as far as india to know what that is going to roll out um as and so um i don't believe that the case referred to indian law but they certainly um made presumptions hold on one second they certainly made presumptions um because they needed to root their case because they wanted to equate it with religion they needed to root their case in um assigning a agnostic a religion i mean talk about a violation of religious freedom um and assigning them castes i mean based on what their last name i don't know that's very interesting so so there is a concept creep <laughs> when it comes to these things from india to america in in a very absurd way and but um, at the same time i feel it gives me a little bit of a glimmer of hope because the way american law is set up it's going to be very hard for these people to get get things done legally in america because the american system um is kind of built on the premise of individualism and a lot of these things are just collectivism which is going to be um going to be premised on the basis of uh, <clears throat> kind of uh, group rights india is obsessed with group rights america is the complete opposite like if you look at indian jurisprudence the focus on group rights is a lot um and in it showcases itself in policy making one more question from uh, a lawyer friend of mine was that can you ask suhag whether you have the right to raise scrutiny in the manner in which the department first brought the case as in outside of the prosecutorial misconduct charge um yeah that's exactly what we've done whether it's the motion to intervene which is trying to intervene into the case itself or our federal case where we have sued the state for its heavy-handedness in trampling civil rights a community civil rights so yes all and right fair enough point in terms of your point about group rights um i think that's an important point if you look at non-discrimination policies in the united states they're premised on facially neutral generally applicable classes race national origin which includes ancestry and um ethnicity uh, sex sexual orientation age um disability now when you look religion when you look at these categories race everyone has a race ethnicity or ancestry everyone has one age everyone has one when you look at caste there's only one group that's associated with it south asians broadly indian indians more specifically and then even more specifically hindus which that is where the problem with this particular category arises had the state just pursued their case like any other national origin case i don't think they would be in the hot water that they are today all right so now let me have a follow up question now that this case has been dismissed so i was wondering that like will there be any kind of documentation that eventually will come out stating that this is the reason it was uh, dismissed if that is not the case shouldn't the two people whose lives were basically ruined if you ask me these two gentlemen their lives were ruined unnecessarily for what i mean do you think they should then maybe sue 
the organizations, let's say, for example, you're not taking this name. I am. Equality Labs. They literally ruined the life of a lot of people here. And they have gone after people. They have said many things. Do you think there is a prime FSI case then where maybe somebody can actually, you know, file defamation or something of that sort? Because once you are, Suhag, once you are, you know, marked, it, this is like literally putting a mark on someone that, oh, you are a casteist without any evidence. You know, you have to deal with the consequences of it for the rest of your life. Yeah. Uh, look, they they too would have their own causes of action. So similar to what we filed a Section 1983, uh, certainly the defendants could. Uh, they might even be able to collect monetary damages on that. I don't know the details of whatever negotiations led to the voluntary dismissal. We know that they dropped their motion for sanctions, which is very similar to what a 1983 claim would do. So um, yes, they could. Uh, whether they can is a different story. But I think that um, what's important here is that um, the at least their perspectives, even though the media ignored them and they continue to ignore them. I'm, I'm noticing now some of the coverage where I've been talking to members of the media for months now. And after doing a deep dive into the filings and seeing the actual, you know, initially we didn't make any sort of comment on the factual situation of the case, like whether caste discrimination happened or not. Our issue was more with how the state went about filing its claim in a manner that was xenophobic and in a manner that was unconstitutional. Um, but um, as time proceeded, I went and did a deep dive and it was eye-opening. Here you have Sundar Iyer, who's a serial entrepreneur. He has a startup. Cisco says, hey, incubate it here. And so he's given kind of the stock equity up front. And he's like, you know what? I've had enough startups under my belt. I don't need this money. Let me use all of my stock grants to go and recruit the strongest team possible. He goes out, seeks out John Doe, who was a classmate of his from 20 years ago um, at, I at IIT. He recruits him. John Doe himself signs an agreement where he gets millions of dollars, several million dollars of stock grants. Um, and according to court records, he was one of the most well-paid engineers at Cisco. So, you know, right off the bat, if if this defendant is Castus, why would he go out of his way to recruit someone? And that too, with such a generous package. You can go further into those filings. Uh, Sundar Iyer, actually has distant relatives who self-identify as Dalit. Uh, he has a blog from his Stanford days where he says that he's an agnostic and rejects casteism. Uh, and, and more importantly, in the department itself, um, there are three head positions, one of which is held by someone else who self-identifies as Dalit, and the other two head positions at different points in time had been offered to that individual. So, um, and this was all before John Doe even made his claim. And then uh, just quickly about Ramana Kumpala, you know, the, the case says, the, the state claims that uh, John Doe was required to do these weekly reports. Now, look, I'm in management. When we give someone an assignment of weekly reports, it's because they've either missed key deadlines or they're not performing to where they need to be or whatever. The fact here is, though, that the idea and the decision to require weekly reports came from Ramana Kompala's non-Indian boss. And so the suit then, who gets dragged into this? The messenger of a directive that comes from upper management, right? But you couldn't, John Doe could not have claimed caste-based discrimination against, say, a white manager. He had to have an Indian. And so that also kind of shows kind of the discriminatory intent that can drive uh, caste-based um, allegations. So, you know, you have a, a set of facts that were readily available to the media um, and they chose to ignore it because they were inconvenient truths. Okay, this is very interesting. So now I want to connect this because I also want to talk about it. Um, 
about this bill SB 403 that is being pushed by Aisha Wahab, right? If I got her name right. Yeah. Aisha Wahab is uh, pushing this bill. Um, now, what exactly does this bill talk about? So this bill um, is kind of like the city of Seattle's ordinance um, on steroids, because what it's doing is it's seeking to add caste um, into statewide non-discrimination laws. This would be non-discrimination in housing, non-discrimination in uh, in employment, non-discrimination in public accommodations, so hotels, restaurants, etc., where things like race, national origin, ancestry, um, and uh, religion, and all these things are already covered. Yet, and in California, the Civil Rights Department already filed a case under existing law. Yet. Senator Wahab has decided to add caste as a standalone category. Now, as I said before, everyone has a race, everyone has an ancestry, everyone has an age or a, not everyone has a religion, but at least these like kind of core fundamental protections um, everyone has. That's not the case with caste. Not only is it just in terms of the public imagination, but it isn't going to be the case by the definitions that Senator Wahab has uh, promoted in her bill. She calls it a rigid uh, birth-based hierarchy. She brings in endogamy, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and she says it's rooted in South Asia. Now she mentioned South Asia at least four times. So now you have a category that on its face in the actual language of the bill singles out and targets people of South Asia on what on the basis of their national origin or ancestry or their ethnicity. So the amendment actually violates the very law it's seeking to amend. Um, now, she mentioned South Asia four times. Then in case people don't know what South Asia is, she wants to kind of double down and say, wait, well, let, just in case you're confused, let me actually outline who the intended um, targets of this category will be. People from India, people from Pakistan, people from Bangladesh, Nepal, and Sri Lanka. Um, and then there's like a kind of side mention in the same way that we saw in Seattle of Japanese, of South Americans, and Africans. So, okay, you've it's bad enough that you've already targeted South Asians. Now let's go ahead and target a couple more communities of color, all minorities. And if we really want to start digging into the last time California targeted Japanese Americans was during World War II when they were held in internment or basically concentration camps here in the United States. And many of those camps were in California. So that is what Senator Wahab is seeking to do. So on the subject of endogamy, I find it very interesting. So endogamy is where basically people of one particular tribe, that, that tribe could be uh, anything for that matter, right? It could be a religious tribe. It could be a political tribe. It could be anything because that's what endogamy is, where people only prefer to marry amongst a certain group. So, so look at this survey by, uh, you know, the Institute for Family Studies. This is November 3rd, 2020. Look at this number. Marriages between um, Democrats and Republicans are rare. So would, would, uh, would uh, Aisha Wahab um pass a legislation uh that would criticize democrats because that's where she belongs um stating that uh, basically democrats are endogamous group and they refuse to marry republicans and it is creating a huge problem for republicans well, i wonder because i'm sharing an authentic source that we're a mixed marriage in this family, um, <laughs> politically. Um, but, um, and I won't say who's who, uh, but um, yeah, exactly. The problem with endogamy um, in the definition is that if there is an allegation of caste discrimination under her proposed law versus ancestry, um, who someone is married to or what someone's romantic preferences might be in terms of cultural preferences now can become potentially evidence of guilt 
for only South Asians because of the way that she has defined or problematized marriage within one's community. And to your point, it could be religion, it can be linguistic, it can be class. Wealthy people marry other wealthy people, right? Like that happens. So, but that's not problematized for any of the other classes. So if you get, uh, you know, accused of race-based discrimination, it doesn't matter what color your spouse is. That's irrelevant to any investigation that's occurring in the workplace because you've been accused of something. However, for caste, if this becomes law, yes, it matters because it's part of the definition. And so who you're married to, and if you happen to marry someone from within your community, one of the most fundamental rights to privacy in terms of who you choose to marry. And our country has struggled with that. You know, I know in India right now, there's the court case with uh, same-sex marriage, but we resolved that issue. We said people should have the right to marry who they want to. And, um, but now, not for South Asians, because that might be a point against you if you ever find yourself accused of caste discrimination. So this is fascinating. <clears throat> not only is this proposal by um, Aisha Wahab uh, absurd, it is actually racist. Oh, yeah. It is putting, basically you're putting a target on somebody's back, right? Oh. Or <clears throat> or in the case of Indians, it's like, remember the dot busters, where they would just look at the dot and shoot the person in the 80s, uh, those hate crimes. So basically she's creating targets mm -hmm. and saying these people, they bring this over here. So you better watch out for these people, right? That's exactly what they're doing. Oh, yeah, right? Absolutely. And she happens to be in a district where there's a significant number of people of Indian origin, including my parents, including many of HAF staff and leadership. And um, she did this without any consultation with the community that she was targeting. She might have consulted with some activists, um, you know, because we've seen photographs at the press conference of um, known activists that she consulted with. But she didn't consult with the people that she's there to serve. She did not consult with the people who put her in office. So I hope that come next election, people in her district think hard about whether she really represents them. Because her way of representing them is throwing them under the bus and putting a target on them on the basis of their background. And nothing gets more xenophobic than that. So did did the representatives of her constituency actually try to reach out to her and did she listen to them or anything of that sort has happened? We're still waiting to have a meeting scheduled. Um, and I know many other uh, community groups that are concerned and constituents um, have been reaching out to her office. Um, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. She's new. I mean, talk about trying to make a splash. This is not the right splash because she just jumped into a puddle of mud. But I do know that many constituents have expressed um, frustration in um, not hearing back and not getting things scheduled and not being heard by her. So do you expect that even, let's assume even if this legislative proposition fails, I'm just creating a hypothetical, that in the future perhaps we'll see prosecutions on caste-based discrimination under one of the facially neutral heads of in the statute, uh, in yeah. the statute books? Absolutely. And I, and I think that's where it belongs. Look, no one should be discriminated against on the basis of caste or any other thing, language, religion, all of those things. And when you look at a category like national origin, um, it already covers things like descent, accent, culture, um, ancestry, birthplace, all these things, all of these things that one would potentially associate with caste. So it's already covered. Um, I would say that the fact that we've not seen like a scourge of, uh, of, you know, cases and Cisco was the first one. There's probably a reason behind that because it's not that common. And I think the data tells us that if you look at the Carnegie endowment, uh, survey, um, half of the people surveyed Indian Americans faced some level of discrimination, mostly on the basis of color or, uh, ethnicity or religion. Caste-based discrimination was exceedingly rare. Something like 2.5% of those um, who reported it said that they had faced alleged caste discrimination. Now, what's interesting there is many of them said that the perpetrator was not of South Asian origin. So 
that begs the question as to whether it was caste-based discrimination or something else. But the point is, um, even one case is one too many. And existing law already covers it. So what do we need to do? Corporations need to educate their workers on both their rights and responsibilities under existing policies. And the community, you know, organizations like HAF need to do the same thing. Um, I think there will be um, more cases, uh, but thinking to the examples that many of these activists have given as indicators of caste discrimination, I just don't know that the factual basis will be there. Um, some of the examples that have been given is that, oh, someone asked me if I was vegetarian. I'm sorry, that's not discrimination. Um, uh, or someone asked if I take my child to Balvihar. That too is not discrimination. Discrimination is very specifically uh, defined as kind of a pattern of behavior that results in a hostile environment um, on the basis of one's background. So that would be maybe an environment where someone's constantly, you know, uttering slurs or things like that, or making broad generalizations on the basis of someone's um, ancestry. Or it might be where your ancestry actually uh, kind of impacts whether you've been hired, fired, or promoted, or not promoted. Um, so there are very specific uh, protections in the workplace. And uh, I think that when you um, put it under existing policies, there's kind of a pattern. There's already a process in which these things can be investigated so that you can kind of work through the facts to realize, is there a legitimate problem here? And then find the remedy. No. One thing that has been, <clears throat> you know, I'm trying to think like in America, you have the first amendment where uh, the Brandenburg versus Ohio standard says that outside of a speech that is violent, where there is clear and imminent danger, you can pretty much say anything you want to. So uh, uh, full disclosure, I am not saying people should use caste slurs. I myself have always encouraged people not to use them. But what if somebody does? I'll give you a very real scenario. In my community, which is the Punjabi community, I actually know of a word that people keep using. They don't even know in many cases that it's a caste slur. They, they don't know. That's how cultures are. And they just keep dropping that word in conversations. Is that right? No. We should educate the community to, to stop using that word. But what if somebody does? Then legislations like these... So how does the First Amendment and legislations like these work around each other then? No, that's a good question. Um, I always say you might have a right to say it, but it doesn't mean it's right to say. So, <laughs> you know, um, as far as, uh, you know, hate speech or whatever, I'm, it is free speech. Uh, doesn't make it right speech. So, um, yes, you have a right to free speech, but free speech comes in where it's protected right against the government, not necessarily in a private corporation. And while you might have a right to say things uh, that are horrible and racist or whatever, if then your speech is contributing to an environment where people from that community are um, fearful, they don't have psychological safety, they're not able to do their job, or they feel that your rhetoric is impacting their ability to get good projects or their ability to get promoted or their ability to get support, well, there's a mechanism for that, right? And that's non-discrimination laws. So sure, you can say whatever you want, but then you're going to take the risk. Um, first of all, it's not right to do that. If you're in a corporation, your first and foremost responsibility is to engage in whatever the goals are of that corporation, whether it's a product, whether it's a service, whatever it is, and do your best job and treat your team members on, on what they bring to the table, treat them with dignity, treat them with respect. Um, so that's where I would say that, yeah, you might have a right to say something, but when your speech starts impacting the ability for someone else um, to do their job or to thrive in the workplace, um, that's where non-discrimination policies have a very strong place to play. Okay, fair enough. Now I get it. Because see what happened in the case of British Columbia. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of the case. I mean, I know it's Canada, it's not America. So Canadian law, uh, honestly, Canada does not have free speech like America does. Canada is very restrictive 
in its idea of freedom of expression. Um, if, if people have a doubt, you know, people are criticizing India's new IT regulations. You should go and check out the Bill C-11 proposed by the Canadian government right now. Uh, you think Indian governments are draconian? Please visit Canada when it comes to this particular bill about what they want to do with the internet in Canada. But so maybe we can end on this, Suhag, uh, and we can spend a little bit of time on this. Let's say 10, 10 or 10 on minutes and wrap it up. What do we do as a community? Look, we should uh, we should not deny that there are elements within our community that that might be doing some things that are not correct. Mm-hmm. Now, there are bad people in this world. The problem that has, you know, it has kind of engulfed uh, the entire discourse from what I have understood. Unfortunately, I don't know what to say uh, inside the American political arena is this identitarian obsession. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's all about identity now. What am I? Am I X? Am I Y? It's, and, and in that... Sometimes I feel the individual is lost. I I don't want to be the person who uses wrong things, whether it's on the basis of slurs, which are racist, or whether there are, you know, uh, based on your ethnicity or based on your caste or whatever. How do how does one move forward as an individual citizen in America? How does one move forward, let's say, in organizations, whether it's the Hindu American Foundation or how, how do we, I myself as a content creator who has a significant listening base in, in the United States of America and Canada, because America is my second largest listener base outside of India in terms of percentages. So how do how do we all build on this so that we solve the issue in a non-legislative way? Because it's clearly the legislative way is not the solution. Yeah. No, I think there's many organizations and many thought leaders who are proposing a pro-human approach. Um, How do we create environments for everyone to bring their whole selves and that we abide by certain norms um, that ensure that we don't mistreat one another on the basis of things that we can't change or of beliefs that we might hold strongly. And those are kind of the foundational principles of whether it's equal protection, um, whether it's our non-discrimination laws. Um, And so I think it's important to kind of go back to those basics. Have those basics always delivered the promise of the ideal that they speak of? No. Have we seen improvements over the past 20, 30, 40 years? Absolutely. So I think it's important to kind of um, root our conversations from some of these basic principles. Treat everyone equally, um, you know, don't, don't be a jerk. (laughs) And then, um, and then I think the other problem is, is that people aren't speaking up. People are scared to speak up because all of this identitarianism is actually coming from the fringes, right? But the fringes are super loud. And yes, is there a creep when it starts getting institutionalized into DEI policies or non-discrimination policies? Yes. That's where it's, absolutely imperative for those of us who feel a sense of, hey, this just doesn't feel right. And the thing is, most studies are showing that the direction that DEI trainings have gone in, where they divide people on the basis of color, or they put men here and women there and say, okay, now women, you, um, you know, slap the butts or be rude to the men and make, you know, sexist comments or whatever to make them see how it feels. That's, that's not solving a problem. You know, if if there have been historical wrongs, flipping the equation doesn't fix things. Um, It just leads to worse problems. So I think that those people who sense that discomfort, um, that this is not right to pit people against one another. And we know from statistics or certain studies rather, that this is not, these trends are not leading to human flourishing. So speak up, you know, if there's a law that's being proposed in your state, like California, write to your assembly member, write to your senator, call them, let your vote also be part of your voice, write letters to the editor. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can make um, our opinions know, 
known. I feel that there are more reasonable people than noisy people, but where the noisy people continue to get to be the only voice in the room is because the people who are sensical are just quiet. And so um, in order to drown out noise, you kind of have to make at least the same level of noise or a little bit more. And that's what I would say that needs to be done. Fair enough. Just one question from a viewer. I'm going to twist it around and ask okay. it. So uh, I think it's a very important question. Let's say hypothetically, if this legislation by Wahab gets passed, it's true, right? Because um, even targeting of Brahmins would be legally weaponized then. So if you use a caste slur like, uh, because I clearly remember Nikunj uh, coming on the podcast and telling me it actually happened with him in a train station, like in a subway, where he entered the subway and somebody called him an effing Brahmin. Hmm. So if this happened in California and this legislation gets passed, people don't realize like in America, laws are equal even when they are passed. So Brahmins can also use it, right? Right, right. No, absolutely. I think this is where um, these uh, activists who are South Asians have scored a self goal. These activists are the ones that actually engage in some of the most demonizing rhetoric. So if they're in the workplace, if their activists are working at corporations like PayPal or Google or wherever else, and they are posting, um, you know, articles about um, how horrible Rambins are or how horrible a particular group is, Savarna or whatever it is, they're engaging in casteism. Now, I know in India, because there is this infrastructure. SCST Atrocities Act. Right. So you have an infrastructure where you have institutionalized who is a victim and who is the victimizer. And therefore, if the victim engages in the same behavior against the victimizer, there's no cause of action. There's no protection. So that's not the way American law works. So for all of the um, anti-general category or so-called upper caste rhetoric that many of these activists engage in, the demonizing of people. So, you know, go back to the Dismantling Global Hindutva Conference, right, where one of the professors put out, these are the names that are associated with uh, violence. Well, if he is in a universe, actually, regardless of whether there's caste or not, he's engaging in ancestral discrimination and students at his university, if there are non-discrimination laws on the books, should file a complaint against him. So absolutely that is correct. That um, where we see the most overt um, demonization, it oftentimes is coming from um, champions of the policy. And so that's where they're serving a self goal. Look, as an ethnic minority who comprise 1.5% of the United States, um, all brown people look the same to the average American. And so they're not gonna know the difference. That's what Ambedkar said too. (laughs) And what these activists have actually done is they have painted our entire community, regardless of any historical uh, marginalization or whatever, they've painted the entire community as both a nuisance and a liability. And only time will tell Uh, that where a corporation has a choice between hiring someone who is South Asian versus some other ethnicity, if you know that South Asians carry this additional liability that is fraught with implementing a discriminatory law, they are in and of itself a liability. Not only is it a liability from the implementation side of things that you don't know what you're supposed to ask, you might have to ask them intrusive questions. There might be a checkbox so that it makes it administratively easier to deal with this thing. But you also risk that individual suing the corporation because they're implementing a discriminatory law. So they're a liability any which way you see it. And they're a nuisance because Here's a community, every every intra-ethnic community has their dynamics, has their prejudices, but they don't go to the state to say, hey, we're so bad, target us. But South Asians are doing that. And that's, that's probably a whole other episode. Maybe you can get a psychologist on <laughs> or a sociologist to try to diagnose that. Um, you know, this level of self-harm 
that people within our community are willing to um, inflict upon us is mind boggling. Yeah. And as you had explained earlier on that if somebody faces real discrimination, they can anyways file a lawsuit exactly with current legislation so yeah, yeah I, I i don't understand what it is you know the funny thing is somebody on twitter called me a brahmin yep. <laughs> first of all that person did not know i stay in india this random white guy living in austin texas saw me and he heard brahmin bad so let me call him a brahmin and i mean he could not even google that my surname is of uh, another caste in the indian system but that's how it is it's it's going to be a lot of fun is all i can say but uh, before we wrap it up chuak anything else that you'd like to add no i just you know would encourage people to come to hinduamerican.org to learn more about this issue we have an ongoing action alert so if you live in california let your senator know let your assembly members know that you oppose this discriminatory law and that you also are very fully aware of the fact that existing policies already prohibit caste-based discrimination and that we as Hindus who believe in the oneness of all people on the planet are fundamentally opposed to mistreating people on, um, on any sort of basis, at least um, from what our tradition tells us. All right. Awesome. So guys, well, before we wrap it up, once again, in the description, you'll have the Twitter handle of the Hindu American Foundation. You'll have Suhaq's Twitter handle and the web website link of Hindu American Foundation. So if you are living in America, Canada, I would encourage you guys. Uh, uh, I, I have told uh, it's time Suhag and the HAF decide and do something about the Canadian side of things also time for a hindu canadian foundation I, i'll keep on trolling suhag for that uh, <laughs> i need a couple more arms to do that so if that yes. happens in the next few years i'm game <laughs> yeah so so that needs to happen but go and check their website out if you can support them if you are living in the united states of america please support the hindu american foundation too uh, if you want to support the charwak podcast please do too you can become a member buy the merch you know the drill also, please like this video, subscribe, and audio listeners, go leave a rating on iTunes or Spotify. I'll see you guys next time. Take care. Bye.